Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 25 through 37. John chapter 19, verse 25 through 37. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten our minds by the Spirit that we may see Christ in all his glory before us in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 19, verse 25 through 37. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. I have uh, found that in uh, the Christian subculture, it's, it's often easy to, uh, to spout out a, a cliche phrase, you know, like, um, Jesus is the answer, or um, God won't give you more than you can handle, or Phrases like that, they're ones that we're taught, they're ones that we're, um, we receive, they're ones that we experience, and so we repeat them, right? But let's take that first cliche answer, we call it the Sunday school answer, you know, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. It's easier to say that than it is to confront the real issues of life and death and eternity and sin and brokenness 
in a fallen world where things happen that don't seem fair. And to realize that Christ came to resolve all those things. So I want us to do, what I want us to do today as we look at this passage, as we look at this moment of the death of Jesus, is to ask the opposite today. So if, if the statement, Jesus is the answer, is something we hear often, then maybe we should ask, if Jesus is the answer, then what are the questions? What are the questions that we are asking that Jesus is the answer to? And hopefully as we go through our passage this morning, we will find those questions and see how Jesus is the answer to them. Our theme this morning is the cross shows us who Christ is and how we can be saved. The cross shows us who Christ is and how we can be saved. We have four points this morning. The first is Christ cares. The second is Christ carries. The third is Christ calls out. And the fourth is Christ completes. Christ cares, Christ carries, Christ calls out, Christ completes. Those alliterations were for you, Josh. Christ carries, the first point, verse 25 through 27. It's only in John's gospel that we see this moment. We see this interaction. We hear this information. That near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister married the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. It's important that we notice that there is a group of of women, um, bold women, that they would be present at the cross of Jesus Christ when the disciples, all except for John himself, are nowhere in sight for fear that they may be associated with Jesus who has now been declared a criminal and suffer the same crucifixion as death as Jesus is receiving. It's some of these same women who will be present at his burial, who will be the ones who will show up to anoint him and prepare his body, who will be the first to hear the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead and proclaim it. To the disciples. It's another thing to realize that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is watching the death of her very own son. Many of you who are mothers could not imagine watching your child die, let alone in such a gruesome in a violent way. Yet we read, when Jesus saw his mother there, hanging from the cross, lifting himself up by his feet so as not to asphyxiate, so as to be able to breathe while he's hanging there, back tore open from the whipping and the lashes, a thorn, a crown of thorns crushed onto his skull. Hanging there upon the cross, he sees his mother And the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby. He said to his mother, dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So there's a 
a personal interpretation that is placed upon this part of the passage, and that it's Christ is showing love for his own. That it's profound to realize, as some of the other words from the cross that we read, and you imagine Jesus upon the cross saying, Father, forgive them, and they know not what they do, is that even in his dying, in his suffering, he is not self-absorbed, but he is putting others before himself. He's thinking of his mother. And as the firstborn son, he's considering that fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And even as he is knowing that his passing is coming, he wants to ensure that his mother will be cared for. And as his other brothers and sisters are nowhere to be found, and even at this point have declared that they are unsupportive of Christ's claim to being the Messiah, he turns to the beloved disciple, the disciple whom he loved, and calls upon him to care for his mother. He loves and he cares for his mother and is providing for her even in his final moments. But there's also a theological interpretation. Besides the fact that this is often a scripture passage that is twisted to glorify Mary in Roman Catholic tradition. It's interesting to note that for the second time in John's gospel, an interaction between Jesus and Mary carries some of the same themes. Jesus addresses Mary not as mother, but as woman. And in fact, the NIV translation that I have before me here does not do it justice. They add the word dear to bring a connotation of personalness that's not actually there in the original language. When Mary confronted Jesus at the wedding at Cana, he did the same thing. Woman, and this is not to be demeaning in any such way, but it does do something for us. He does this to distance himself from the conventional relationship of son to mother in order to assume something of his lordship as a divine son and messianic savior. See, Jesus is more than just Mary's earthly son, although he very much is that. Jesus is Mary's God and savior. In his commentary, Ketty says, his parting words are not those of the love of mother, so characteristic of Victorian sentimentalism, a kind of returning to the warmth of the womb, but an evocation of the love of heaven and his provision of redemption for the weak and vulnerable whom he was purchasing with his blood. But there's also the concept of the durability of faith under trial. He continues... Few mothers could have borne for a moment the spectacle of a son suffering such a cruel and humiliating end. Yet here there was fulfillment of a previous prediction and therefore the confirmation of her faith. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about that moment back when Jesus was a baby long ago where they entered into the temple to present him as the firstborn. And there was a man there, Simeon, and Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And upon seeing Jesus, he prophesied. And he told Mary that this baby, Jesus, 
was destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which be spoken against. And he said to Mary, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And here in this moment, we can see the sword piercing the heart of Mary. But the question is, should not the cross of Christ pierce our souls as well? Before we come to the newness of life and the risen Savior? Should not the brutality of the cross show us what our sin really looks like? The links by which God must go to be both just and the justifier. And here we see in this interaction, this moment which Jesus provides for Mary's future, that she would be cared for and looked after. A warm but small emblem of that greater provision in which he offers himself once and for all to bear the sin of those whom he loved who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. If Jesus is the answer, then the cross of Christ shows us that Christ cares for us as he cares for his mother. What about Christ carries? Verse 28 and 29. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And it's interesting to see in correlation with the words, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus would say such an ordinary and such a human statement. I am thirsty. And it's interesting to consider those very profound I am words that we have found throughout the Gospel of John as proclamations of Christ's identity as the Ekoe me, the I am. I am that I am, the name of God himself, he identifies with it. And all the many things that he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. And maybe even most interestingly, I am the living water. The one who is the living water, that he should say, I am thirsty. But these words, these words tell us that Christ carried the bitterness of sin upon his own body. There's three things to notice in this moment that Ketty lists out. First is that he declared his thirst because he knew that all was now completed. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that he's speaking of about being completed? This means all things pertaining to his death had come to pass. 
But we're at the approaching moment of having come to pass. The moment of his death had finally come. And this lets us see the Lord's comprehensive awareness of the purpose of God. Christ was living out the path his Father had given him. The will of the Father, he was performing it perfectly. Walking in each and every step. That this was his very own food, what sustained him. Ketty says, for all the machinations of Jews and Romans and Satanist legions too, all celebrating their imagined autonomy from God, Jesus was dying according to a timetable fixed in the councils of eternity. Outwardly, it looks as if all the plans that Jesus had had gone astray, that everything he aspired to had come to an end, that he had finally been overcome, defeated, that he was dying a criminal's death, a shameful death. Yet, this was the timetable fixed in eternity. Second, Christ or John makes a statement so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So that the scripture would be fulfilled, he would say, I am thirsty. Well, Psalm 22, that great messianic psalm, verse 15, we're told, But the psalmist said, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, declaring in those words the depth of his suffering, a suffering that is so real, so experienced, that his mouth is dry, his tongue clings to his jaws. In Psalm 69, another messianic psalm, verse 21, They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. So these two statements show that Christ is providing an objective attestation of the truth that all things were indeed in the hands of God insofar as he is fulfilling the scriptures that were written about him. And so we hear those seemingly so human and insignificant words, I am thirsty, yet for Christ they are fulfilling. They are his duty, they are his call, they are his obedience. I am thirsty so that we may know that he is the Messiah, the one who has come to give us salvation. And third, the picture of Jesus' dry mouth being moistened with sour wine on a sprig of hyssop would for many bring to mind the way hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood of sacrifices on the mercy seat in the temple. And even the words in David's great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51 might come to mind as well. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Although, in one way, this might be looking into it too much, might be seeing too much of a figurative sense here, the idea or the reality that hyssop is there, moistening the mouth of a dying Savior, could show us that Christ is the true blood of the final and ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice that all other sacrifices pointed to. Only Christ can cleanse us from our sin. So if the answer is Jesus, then the question is, how will we be free from our sin? From the condemnation that we deserve because of all the wrong we have done against God. Thinking back to that Psalm 51, right? Against you only, God, have I sinned. The cross shows us that Christ carried the bitterness of our sin on his body. 
And we see the bitterness of that sin in the one who created water saying, I am thirsty. And the sourness of the wine vinegar being placed upon his mouth. So we've seen that Christ cares. We've seen that Christ carries. The, last, or the next point is Christ calls out. Verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Much has been said about those words, it is finished. And so often, we're so used to hearing it, we're so used to already assuming that so many know its meaning and significance that we don't ponder the question, what is finished? What exactly is Christ speaking of? Well, the phrase, it is finished, in English, containing three words, is actually only one word in Greek, tetelestai. And tetelestai has great meaning because it speaks of the telos. It has its root in the meaning or the end The completion, the finishing. So when Christ says it is finished, in one sense, what he's saying is the worst his enemies could do to him is now over. That he is about to transition from his humiliation to his exaltation, and the agonies of his physical death were coming to an end. But this phrase, that the last die, it's not exhausted by the end of Christ's uncomfortable experiences. It reaches further out to the telos, the goal of his person and work as the Messiah. And Katie lists five things that Christ finished that we can consider when we hear those words, it is finished. He finished the work the Father sent him to do. He fulfilled the Old Testament promises about the Messiah and the Old Testament ceremonies because he was the true Passover. He finished the power of sin of the world and established the reign of his righteousness. He secured by his finished sufferings his own satisfaction, joy, and victory. And he fully satisfied the justice of God and gained salvation for sinners. So when we hear those words on the cross, it is finished. What we must think of is everything. The summation of all of God's creative purposes are found in the completion of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross and all it entails. So if the answer is Jesus, the question very realistically in this circumstance would be, what is the meaning of life? And it's to know that all things lead to Christ. That all things are in him, through him, and for him. That if you seek to desire and to understand what life is all about apart from cross, your pursuit will be futile. And if you want to know what eternity is like and how to gain it, find forgiveness of your sins and redemption 
You must go to where it was finished. But also we read those words in verse 30, right? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Gave up his spirit is important because in so many ways, outwardly it looks as if Christ is being dragged along against his will. That this is not where he wants to go. That this is not the way he wanted his life to end. That all of his plans and his followers and their, and their desires are being frustrated. But we have to remember those words that Christ said, right? No one takes my life from me. His death was voluntary. And in order to make that point, John, the gospel writer, makes sure to say that the death of Christ was a giving up of his own spirit. Ketty writes in his commentary, he sovereignly gave himself to a death that otherwise could never have claimed him. This is important to understand. It was not his being human that killed him. For sinless humanity would never and will never die. He died because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when we read in verse 30 of John's gospel, chapter 19, that he gave up his spirit, what we need to understand is that it is in that moment that Christ realized he had bared in his own body the fullness of God's wrath against his elect. And that that bearing of the wrath of God, the pouring out of the cup, that Christ had drank every last drop and he could say it is finished and give up his spirit. You see, so many of us think that death is normal. That's what it means to be human is to experience death. But death is not normal. It is a supernatural intrusion of sin into the perfect world that God created. Remember what God said in the garden. He said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying you shall die. He said. What does that tell us? It tells us that God's intention for humanity being made in the image of God is not to die. It is an abnormal disability resulting from sin and alienation from God and we've lived with it so long that we think that it's common. It's normal. It's natural. So although death is not normal, it is the normative result of the sinful state. We are told the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus' death in this moment, it's the reversal of this normative result for those he dies for. Why is it that Christ, or that Paul can proclaim in 1 Corinthians 15, after declaring the importance of the resurrection, the death, where is your victory? Death, you've lost your sting. You see, death has no natural claim on Christ, but it can be accepted by him in his voluntary self-offering as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sin of those he will save from their sins. And so when we read in this verse, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is Christ. 
choosing to die for us. So if the answer is Jesus, then the question we could say in this moment is, is death our greatest enemy? And the answer to that question is no, sin is, and Christ is the answer. Death is only the result of sin that has entered into this world. And sin has been defeated in Christ. And so, therefore, has death. Christ cares. Christ carries. Christ calls out. Lastly, Christ completes. Verse 31 through 37. It was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The first four verses of this last part of our passage tell us the circumstances of Christ's death. The first thing we hear is that it's the preparation day. It was the day of preparation. This is the day before the Sabbath. The irony is that these Jews' preparation for the the Lord's day, for God's day of worship, was dominated by Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. The Jews had been pleading for Jesus' judicial sentence to a criminal's death are now suddenly worried that his dead body and those of the crucified thieves shouldn't hang too long on the cross unless they would ceremonially defile the land by the exposure of their corpses on the Sabbath. This is what Christ meant when he talked about the Jewish leaders straining out a gnat, being concerned for Tithing of thyme and mint and cumin, but not for the weightier matters of the law. Here is a hypocritical moment where we see that these Jews who are so concerned with outward piety and expressing their alignment with God's rules and circumstances and guidelines, not facing the fact that they have just condemned an innocent man to die a criminal's death upon the cross, but instead are worried that you know, we need to get rid of these bodies because we don't want to defile the Lord's day with these dead bodies. In response to the request, the soldiers come to break the legs of those who have been crucified. This is a practice that was done to speed up the death of crucifixion. The crucifixion The way you continue to survive and live is by pushing up so that you can breathe. And if you break the legs of those who are being crucified, they can no longer push up, and so they suffocate to death. But when they saw that Jesus had already given up his spirit, he already died, they did not 
break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side. And we read that from Christ's side, blood and water came out. There have been many views down through church history of this depiction being understood symbolically, connecting the blood and water to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Augustus' top lady in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, identified the blood and water as the double cure of sin, cleansing us from its guilt and power. Uh, Augustine looked at the blood and water as understanding the sacraments that the church has been given have come from the side of Jesus. And although there may be value in some of these views, because it conveys an air of mysterious depth, the main reason that John, the gospel writer, is writing here, that upon seeing that Jesus had already passed away, instead of his legs being broken, he was pierced in the side, is so that we would know that Jesus really died. He did not faint, and then was taken off the cross and placed in the tomb, and then came back to life a few days later, as so many then will go on to spread rumors about, that he truly died, that he was pierced in the side to finish, to ensure his death. There's also the confirmation, the circumstances and the confirmation concerning Jesus' death. Verse 35 to 37, speak of this. Why are we told about the spear thrust? Why are we told about this? Is so that we can come up with wonderful analogies of the Lord's Supper and baptism. As wonderful as those things are, and as much as I even enjoy thinking about those things, we're told this because it allows us to participate with John as an eyewitness of our Savior's death so that we can know that he died, the God-man died. And the Old Testament law requires more than one witness, and so John gives us two independent lines of testimony. The first is his own. He says in verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. It's important to know that John was there, that John saw this with his very own eyes. This is not a secondhand statement. It's not hearsay. You can snoops it or snopes it. What's it called? Snopes, snoops, whatever. You can truth fact it. You can check, fact check it. In fact, if we look at the life of John, he stakes his integrity upon it. He died in exile on the island of Patmos because of it. But there's another line of testimony, and that's scripture itself. John cites two specific teachings of the Old Testament that speak of the prophecies. The first is that it, would pro- it was prophesied that the Messiah would not have any of his bones broken. And that's from a number of passages. Exodus 12, verse 46. Numbers 9, verse 12. Psalm 34, verse 20. And the second is that of being pierced. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, They shall look on him whom they pierce. And if you look at the context of Zechariah verse 12 or chapter 12, the reference is to God, whom the rebellious people had wounded by their wickedness. And this prophecy brings the God man 
into picture and helps us see that Christ's physical piercing also has a spiritual dimension. Our sins took Jesus to the cross and so are brought into view in this piercing. Jesus is the gospel. His death brings life for all who trust in him. And this is written, John tells us, this is written so that we may believe. And by believing we may have life in his name. This is the crux of the cross. So if the answer is Jesus, what has been completed is our salvation. How can we be saved? It's by believing in Christ's finished and completed work on our behalf. If Jesus is the answer, then what are the questions My encouragement to you is that any questions you have concerning life and its meaning, its purpose, any questions that you have concerning your salvation and what you've been given, any questions you have concerning what the Scripture says or means, or any questions you have about why it was the cross, and and, and any of those questions that eventually what you need to work towards is that Jesus is part of that answer. Because the cross shows us who Christ is. He's the one who cares. He's the one who carried. He's the one who called out. It is finished. He's the one who completed our salvation. The cross shows us who Christ is and how we can be saved. May you all recognize your Savior, in this moment and the salvation that you have received by faith in Him. Jesus really is the answer. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to see Christ more fully, more truthfully, to see how He comes into every part of our lives how he's always supposed to be in view. May we look to Christ ten times for every time we look at ourselves. May we find in Christ the answer to all our questions, the questions that trouble us. May we find in the answer the ability to also find the right questions. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the death of our Savior. Thank you for our salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.